Jamie. Yes, Matt. It is podcast 41. Get out of here. How are your asteroids these days? Yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're clearing up. I got some cream from the doctors, so um, hopefully in another week I'll be all right. Brilliant. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. It's such a it's such a grown up podcast, isn't it? Oh, it's honestly it's the it's the highbrow side of the podcast world. This isn't it? The interplanetary podcast putting, putting the, the ace, ace back, back into, into space. Oh yeah, baby space! I really want to start the show with with what I thought was the funniest thing of the week. Go on then. Well, I've got two funny stories. The, the, I thought the funniest one <laughs> was, uh, did you see Buzz Aldrin when Mike Pence was introducing him? He just definitely does not like being called the second man on the moon, does man, he? Oh, man. Uh, if you haven't seen this video, go watch the video it, uh, of Buzz Aldrin being introduced as the second man on the moon. We'll, we'll put it on the podcast notes. Pictures tell a thousand words. The second man on the moon, Buzz Aldrin, and his face, he kind of goes... Oh god, that one again! And then Mike Pence turns around to look at him, and he and he kind of looks all smiley. Oh hi, yeah, yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah, it's it's and it's I, great. And I'm thinking, suck it up, Buzz, because it's like you've yeah, done. To be fair, arguably the greatest it, being, even being the second man on the moon, is is one yeah. of the greatest things that any humans ever done. I and wouldn't mind that title. You've lived a life of of great wealth and and fame and and yeah. been able to do all the things you've wanted to do. So just suck it up, Buzz. I mean, for goodness sake. Yeah, there's worse things to be called, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm I, sure Mike Mike Pence has heard a few of them. I was going to say, oh no, I'm the second man on the moon. <laughs> what a nightmare compared to the worst administration that America's ever seen. <laughs> yeah, I know which one I'd rather have. Yeah, I'd definitely be Buzz than Mike. So, for Matt, sure. um, another story from this week that was hilarious was the uh, I don't know how to de- how do you describe Alex Jones to someone who doesn't know who he is? He's a conspiracy theorist. He used to have um, a show called Infowars, which I believe uh, was was axed. Am I right? And now he's just got his his radio show. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know Infowars being axed. But maybe I'm wrong. But I thought that he'd been axed off of that because of several, uh, you know... Massively um, controversial things he's said and done. (laughs) Yeah, not just just controversial because he was renowned for that throughout his career, um, which spanned decades, but... um, Yeah, on a a couple of occasions, he he really did hit a bit too close to the bone. I I kind of equate him to being a little bit like uh, an American extreme version of Jeremy Clarkson. Yeah, that's kind of not a bad... Um, comparison. Uh, yeah, Alex Jones. He's he's a really fascinating character. He's uh, my favourite thing at the moment is that he's being divorced, and his wife wants to not allow him access to the kids. And one of the things that in in the court case is that um, you can see what a terrible person he is. You just have to watch Infowars. And uh, but his defence is that it's just a character that he's that yeah, he's playing it's... a character. So maybe everything he says and does is just this really almost like postmodernist art character but the weird, that he's managed but, to cobble together. Yeah, well, this is the strange thing. It's it's like he's admitted that in court, that it's a character, obviously, to try and, 
you know, whether it's a character or not, he's kind of saying that to try and save his own bacon. And obviously he wants to see his kids and that's fair enough. But if you actually think about it, he's gone back to just being the way that he always was, just saying the the most absurd things. It's like, if you think you know some strange yeah, but- things a conspiracy theorist has said, like we didn't walk on the moon. Sorry, Marcus. Um, but if you think about what Alex is saying... It's a whole different ball game. I mean, it's a oh, new, yeah, it's, it's it's a new it's hideous, but, level of wacko. But he makes he makes this. But we should we should get onto the story, shouldn't we? we? Should, this, yeah. this, this guy called Robert David Steele uh-huh. <laughs> claims that Mars is inhabited. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and it's by, pe- <laughs> by people sent there against their their will. Shall so, I read the quote? Yeah. We actually believe that there is a colony on Mars that is populated by children who were kidnapped and sent into space on a 20-year ride. Not kids then. Uh (laughs) So once they got to Mars, they had no alternative but to be slaves on the Mars colony. I mean, that's a quote, isn't it? It's it's so you've got a really You've got to really have looked yourself in the mirror that morning and said, should I say this? Seems a bit extreme. Yeah. No, I'm going to go for it. <laughs> Twenty years when it when the ride itself normally only takes you know nine months yeah. or eight months. Yeah, you know, it just seems and also seems, just seems yeah, a bit weird. Mars is populated by children, but that but but it took twenty years to get there. So I'm assuming <laughs> that they're adults now, unless there's another wacko bit to this theory. I mean, it just it's got to be. I, the only reason why I'm mentioning it is it has come up quite a few times in the news feeds this week. So it's obviously sort of like a story that's managed to gain some traction. Well, do you know what surprised like me crazy. is that NASA actually came out and said, <laughs> "No, there's not. There, there's not children on Mars." And I and I kind of like that they said it. And I kind of also think that haven't they gone back on their? Because you remember they used to say with with stuff like we didn't go to the moon, they just wouldn't dignify mm. it with a response. Yeah, because they thought, well, well, we did, and it's 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 actually not worth replying to you crazies, you know. Yeah, I mean, but <laughs> so Alex Jones' re- response to Steele was, he goes, "Look, I know that ninety percent of the NASA missions are secret, and I've been told by high level NASA engineers you have no idea." And you just think, "Oh my god!" <laughs> yeah, I'd like to know who these high level NASA engineers are. Funny that you never mentioned yeah. names, isn't it? When apparently they all the, whenever the probes fly over this little bit of Mars, they switch them off. Yeah, they switch them off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. and uh, uh, yeah, and and there aren't any rovers on Mars, or there are rovers on Mars. They can't quite decide whether that's true or not true. Mm. It's just it's just crazy. But yeah, Guy Webster from NASA. <laughs> yeah, so he went on to say there are no humans on Mars. There are active rovers on Mars. There was a rumor going around last week that there weren't. There are. <laughs> it's brilliant. But, brilliant but there are no yeah. humans yeah exactly exactly so uh absolutely my brilliant. word but yeah if you want um a, an entertaining half an hour go and watch any info wars uh clips on youtube and and also but make sure you at, make sure oh no, and also marvel make sure at that alex jones. jones's voice it sounds yeah, you like make... he's been gargling with gravel and yeah Marlboros. You know, just make sure you, that you man, you manage to watch it without giving him any money. <laughs> yeah, please don't give. Him yeah, any I money. mean that's the that, that that's the thing, I suppose. Um, if you're wondering what Buzz Aldrin was doing, hanging around with Mike Pence, yeah, uh, that is uh, because of a new uh, initiative by President Donald Trump, mm-hmm. uh, who's reinstated the National Space Council. 
Ah, okay. So this was, and um, this was quite an interesting. <laughs> again, Eric Berger on uh, on um, Ars Technica uh, did a pretty good coverage on this one because uh, he noticed that there was a distinct lack of new space on this uh, particular meeting. Yes. So obviously, everyone's been invited down uh, to uh, start this new space council. And it gives a chance for Mike Pence to kind of take control of, of NASA, essentially, and, and give it a sort of mandate uh, and where it fits in with the U.S. government's function and, and the method- methodology of the U.S. civil space program. Aha. So, yeah, and it's got a lot to do with how, you know, how um, to get costs down to make NASA more cost-efficient and run more like a, you know, really vigorous business, you know, the kind of normal Trump bump, yes. I suppose. Neither Trump nor Pence went into any detail about, uh, you know, how they were going to make, uh, how they were going to bring in private partners. Okay. So um, it, that's not looking good. Um, and the and everyone there was really made up of all the sort of contractors and subcontractors that helped build SLS and Orion. Right. So uh, the Deep Space Program uh, Network, and uh, yeah, so that that they represent all the kind of industrialized states. Yeah, and you can see that there's obviously they're, they're enormously powerful lobbying groups. This lot, mm. uh, uh, but uh, space uh, SpaceX's Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos from Blue Origin, of course, were both asked to attend but couldn't because it was too short notice. Right, but pretty much everyone else there. Was, was there anything political kind of in the fact that Elon wasn't there? He said he wasn't going to get uh, give any more advice, didn't he? Um, after yeah, the he said uh, he wasn't, yeah. Paris Treaty, I, th- I think he, I think he would want to be on this um, National Space Council, or certainly be advising it. And now yeah. he's left that other, he left the other advisory group, the science advisory group that Trump had, because clearly Trump's not listening to any scientist ever. Yeah. So uh, what's the point? Some people, an official involved in the new space community, told Ars Technica that uh, they didn't want any commercial space there, which mm. is a little bit worrying. A little bit, But yeah. it, could, it could be that the attendees of this, of this particular party, as they were introducing it, were actually had been invited by uh, the Policy Council staff. Yes. Uh, and therefore maybe it just represented their bias rather than the bias... To, of the space council itself yes so so there is going to be a point where people are uh, made members of the new users advisory group and that's going to be the key that's going to be the key point where we see where all this is going absolutely yeah so to be continued so it is busy it's quite quite an exciting development though the space council but it'd be really interesting to see what the kind of overall push of it is yes so yeah that's that's a new story we'll sh- we shall be watching unfold we wait the with fingers crossed yeah yeah well yeah because i mean we're, we're both new space advocates aren't we we are jamie yeah, more yeah, than old yeah. space really yeah big time. i like a bit of old space but i like a bit of new yeah, space who doesn't who doesn't <laughs> yeah yeah right so jamie yeah how are your asteroids Oh, they're okay. You know, uh, they, they're getting better. Yeah, it's Asteroid Day yesterday. We missed it. I mean, and oh, we should really apologise that the podcast is a day late. By the way, good things are worth the wait. Uh, we, but we both, Jamie and I, have been very, very busy. So very... busy that we missed our friend Debbie down at Asteroid Day at Imperial College yesterday. I know. Although we, I have been speaking to her, and she's going to she's going to give me a little call tomorrow. 
to nice. tell me all about it. So next week we shall ha- we shall have a little bit from Debbie about how it all went uh-huh. on Asteroid Day. Nice. But let's let's raise let's let's do our little bit, Jamie, and raise let's do the our little bit. Uh, you know raise the raise the awareness of asteroids again. I like doing this. So Matt, where did it all start? It started pretty much on the first day of the nineteenth century. And when I say that, I think it's the, the January the 1st, 1801. But yes. I like to think of 1801 as the start of the okay. uh, 19th century. Okay. Because you'd never call... When, when you're in a year, you wouldn't call it, oh, I'm in year zero, would you? No. You'd say, this is the first year. Let's go from that. You could say the very first day of the 19th century, 1801, there was a, an Italian astronomer. Can I, pronou- can I pronounce the yeah, name? No, you can go for it. You can go okay, for it. Okay, here yeah. we go, because I've been in Italy recently, so obviously I'm going to be okay. good at this. Yeah, go for it. Giacino Giuseppe Maria Obaldo Niccolo Piazzi. I think that was really good. Yeah? <laughs> that was pretty good. I'll have to send it to my Italian friend, see how many points out of ten I got. Yeah, I... Well, I'm going to go with eight. I'm going to go with a strong eight there. Yeah? I, I think that it's was very, eight. very, very uh, convincing. What yeah. a name. Beautiful name. And he found a little tiny star in the constellation of Taurus. And then the next night... He did. He realised that the star had changed position. Say what? And say what? And this, at, this, at this time, in the early 19th century, they realised that stars were so far away that they, you couldn't possibly see them moving over such, yeah. you know, short time frames. Mm. Uh, and so what he'd actually done was discover the first asteroid, which is cool. And he named it after the Roman goddess of ag- agriculture, Ceres. And just for those ah, listening, that's spelt C-E-R-E-S. Yes. Yeah, most confusing, but Ceres, yes. Uh, and so Ceres is the first and just so happens to be the largest by quite a long way actually still the biggest discovered right yeah which is it encompasses over one third of the estimated total mass of all the asteroids in the asteroid belt know, which is, is ridiculous <laughs> isn't is it pretty amazing it's 600 miles so across it's 600 yeah. miles across okay so compared to our moon which is our moon is what 2200 miles across something like that Okay, so it's not as big as our moon, nope. but it's still big enough for gravity to pull it into a spherical shape. Yeah, now that spherical shape is going to be quite meaningful a little bit later on. So it fits into the definition of a dwarf planet? It does, it does. So potentially an asteroid can be a dwarf planet? Who knew? Well, they didn't, well, I mean, let's face it, it's all semantics, but uh, yeah... When um, it was an asteroid, but when Pluto got demoted, it, it was promoted mm. to dwarf planet status as well. Right. So, but there's certainly right. 10 very large asteroids in the asteroid belt. Yeah. So there's Ceres, there's Pallas, there's Juno, there's Vesta, there's Astia, Hebe, Iris, Flora, Metis and Hygieia. So that, those are the... those. Which is your favourite one, Matt? Uh... I like Palace because it was a name of a really good prog rock band. But I, I reckon I know which one's your, which one yours is. <laughs> you, you know what? I haven't mentioned band names this episode because it upset you last time, and you got and brought up prog rock bands <laughs> called Palace, and they were spelt Hoist like that your as own well. Guitar. They were spelt like that as well. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Juno. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> Keyboards available at all good shops. <laughs> So, my my favourite fact about the asteroid belt, 
yeah. is that the asteroid belt is just nothing like you see in the movies. You know in Star Wars where they're flying in between all the asteroids and you go dodging in and out yeah. like that. Just It's just nonsense. So on average, how far away do you think they are away from each other? <laughs> Ooh, I don't know. A couple of miles? Three miles? Something like that? Yeah, yeah, I reckon. I reckon. Try 1.2 million miles between what? each asteroid. Come on. Really? <laughs> so, Wait, are you telling me that for the second week running, yeah. Star Wars has been scientifically inaccurate well remember they're not flying through they're not flying through our asteroid belt are they in fact weren't they flying through the debris of a of a planet that had just been blown up oh yeah that's right yeah so i think i think they're allowed all is forgiven george but certainly when people think about flying through the asteroid belt that that's how they would think about it that's how they perceive it yeah for sure blimey that is that is a that is a long way in between, isn't it? Yeah. Two million kilometres between each other. And and to be honest, back in February 1973, scientists weren't sure if spacecraft could survive going through the asteroid belt on the way to Jupiter from Mars. And that's yeah. why they sent Pioneer 10 off to, to sort of really test that. As a, and that's ah. why it was called Pioneer, because it's like off it going pioneering through that deadly part of the solar system. It turns out it's not deadly at all, that no... Uh, transversing spaceship has ever come close to smashing into anything accidentally. So yeah, so yeah, it's it's pretty it's a pretty clear zone. It's just we always call it the asteroid belt, and in pictures in school school uh, Matt, books about, it shows it all as dense rocks and everything. Twenty twenty that between twenty thousand and fifty thousand years ago, a small asteroid about eighty feet, which is about twenty four meters in diameter, smacked into what is now Arizona and formed Meteor Crater, measuring about 4,000 feet in diameter. Whoa. Amazing. Yeah, the, so that's the Barringer Crater, and it's the best and preserved... It's the best preserved... Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so... That, I need to go and see that. Yeah, I mean, the pictures of Barringer Crater are, are, are ace. They're really good. Uh, but the... Um, I suppose it's probably best looked at from space, or... Yeah, I mean, well, we, when I say space, from above. Yeah, we should just quickly uh we should just quickly clarify the uh, asteroid meteorite meteor thing shouldn't we we should yeah so yeah meteor is is an asteroid or, or comet actually really that sort of entered the earth's atmosphere and they become meteorites if they hit the floor Okay, yeah, that's why. I believe so. I believe that's what it is. Yeah, so uh, or, yeah, asteroids mainly are in the asteroid belt. Of course, there's some that sort of wandered in uh, and sort of orbit in dangerous places near Earth's orbit, which makes it all yeah. very inconvenient, particularly for the dinosaurs. Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, but, but is that what's the definition of an asteroid? I mean, is it just a large chunk of rock or metal that? you know, isn't big enough to be anything else. Yeah, I, I guess I guess the asteroid definition, yeah, I suppose it has to come from the asteroid belt. It's a, it's a little bit vague, like everything. There's a kind of blurred edges at the sides because there are sort of snowy, yeah. icy bodies in the asteroid belt, but I think they'd still be called mm. asteroids rather than comets. So, uh, yeah. Um, and, of course, Psyche, which we've talked about on the programme quite a few times when we're talking about the Psyche mission that's off to, off to it, is, is a big chunk of metal that looks like it's mm. probably the core of a, of a planet that got smashed to bits um, yeah. uh, in the early universe, in the early solar system, we should say. Uh, yeah. Yes. So uh, most of these asteroids are all spinning, and they usually sort of spin on their axis, and it takes about four and a half hours for, for them to spin. Uh, yeah. and it takes about five years for them to go around the Earth in the, if they're in the asteroid belt. 
Five years. Five years. They don't have atmospheres, of course. No. And about once a year, an asteroid about the size of a car will hit the Mm. Earth's atmosphere and burn up before reaching the surface. And so the ones that have got through... Why have they got through over others? Is it just that they're bigger or is it what? Is it that they're made out of a different metal? Oh, I think I think there's quite a few reasons. Yeah, there's, there's lots of different types of asteroid for one and there's different shapes. And it's also, I guess, the, the angle that they actually come in at as well. And how fast they yes. go. Because there must be some asteroids that come in and actually bounce like, uh, you know, like when you throw stones across the water and they sort of skip. Yeah. Ducks and drakes, we used to call it. Mm. Um I think that, that, that you get that effect on the Earth's atmosphere. So you can get ones that just literally skip off the Earth's atmosphere and go flying yeah. back off into space. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it just all depends on the angle that they come in at and how fast they're going as well because they'd be going at all different sorts of speeds. And, of course, if you've got a comet, a comet could be coming in at a ridiculous speed, much faster yeah. than an asteroid would be coming in. So, yeah, uh, yeah pretty pretty, uh, pretty dangerous stuff. Quite rare. It really is. But... It is quite as a sort of threatening thing. Uh, there's a Neil deGrasse Tyson quote that I saw where he was sort of saying that the chances of dying from an asteroid strike is the same as dying in a plane accident, I think. Now, he, he can okay. he, not... I don't know anyone who's died from an asteroid strike, so he can only be sort of saying that in terms of when an asteroid does hit the Earth, it's going to kill so many people that, that, that when you, in the grand scheme of things, if you took, if you took amount of deaths over 20,000 years or something, mm. then it would be about the same. <laughs> Seems a re- really, also, really odd quote. Also, of course, if it does get through our atmosphere mm-hmm. it's likely to hit the ocean yeah much more likely to hit the ocean how annoying would it be if you were on a plane and it hit your plane and that'd be like the yeah, double that would whammy be bad luck wouldn't it <laughs> that would be bad luck yeah yeah i mean the chances of that happening must be very slim but yeah that would be unfortunate ah, i'll tell you what one of the coolest things is go on there are now 150 roughly thereabouts asteroids that are that have a little moon really yeah how cool is that and what and how do they get this moon? Is there certain properties they have to have? Um, no, I think they just have to be big enough to have attracted some other body near it and ended up with a little moon. Interesting. So the, fir- the first asteroid moon system was Ida, and it's got a little ah. moon called Dactyl, and that was only discovered in 1993. So it's pretty pretty recent discovery that they have lot, lot little moons. In fact, I do actually remember that being on the news. Uh, I'm not being that impressed, but now I feel much more impressed. I'm yeah, I'd love to know what that looks like close up. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Asteroid with the moon. Uh, so the, so NASA have flown out quite a few missions. Uh, well, in fact, ESA and NASA have, have both flown out missions to asteroids and yeah. uh, comets and things. Uh, oh, I think NASA's probably, probably the most famous one is their near uh, spaceship, which is one okay. of the discovery program, uh, yes. and and they I think they eventually called it Shoemaker, named after the Shoemaker. astronomer, and that one landed on the asteroid Eros. Okay, so in nineteen seventy three, Pioneer ten went through the asteroid belt. Uh, then we had to wait quite a long time for any kind of next thing, which is October nineteen ninety one. Uh, the Galileo spacecraft tested its equi- equipment on asteroid Gaspera, and that was the first of two asteroid flybys. So Galileo was the first spacecraft to fly past an asteroid and take close-up images. 
Uh, and, and it was in 93, it did its second flyby of Ida. Uh, and that's when it discovered the first moon, uh, Dactyl. And its diameter is 1.5 kilometres. So that's pretty big, isn't it? It's like a that big, chunky big. thing. And it, and it orbits yeah. 62 miles from Ida's centre. Uh-huh. So that's pretty cool, isn't it? Like that, like that. Yeah. So in 96, NEAR was launched, NEAR was launched on a Delta II. And uh, and its whole goal was to land on an asteroid and uh, and uh, look at its mineralogy and all morphology, mm. internal mass distribution and magnetic field. And it did all those things. A highly successful space mission. It's one that's kind of been forgotten now. But I mean, you how don't amazing hear much is that? About that do no, you? no. But it's like it's a it's a space mission that's actually incredible. It landed on <laughs> landed on an asteroid. It's like uh, uh, you know what I mean? It's yeah. pretty incredible. It's crazy. Uh, it uh, it actually flew uh, near flew past uh, Matilda uh, before getting to Eros. Uh-huh. I managed to to, to photograph sixty percent of of Matilda's surface uh, while it was sort of having its twenty five minute encounter as it flew past. <laughs> twenty five minute encounter. I like yeah. that. Yeah, which is just about how mu- how long most of your relationships last. That's true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it's funny because cool. it's true. Uh, oh. Ah, so in <clears> 1999, <throat> we had to wait wait a long a six year dry spell. Yeah, uh, we discovered the second moon You're of not an asteroid. Say Eugenia, right? Are you? And the and the moon Petit, Petit Prince, Prince. Uh, Napoleon the Third, and it's from a painting anyway. Bit of a diss, that isn't it? Apparently, that's a bit really? of an urban myth that that Napoleon was small. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. Same as me, though. It's an urban myth that I'm 5'7". <laughs> but that's not small. I mean, I think Napoleon... But when you meet me, you know. In the podcast world, I'm probably about 6'8", I reckon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, the uh, very, very imaginatively titled um, spacecraft, Deep Space One, passed asteroid 9669 Braille. Oh, it's my favourite, favourite yep. number Braille, that. Yeah, uh, of all the asteroids at Braille, named after Braille, that's certainly the best one. Uh, and uh, and it was one of the very first spacecraft, as you know, Jamie, to to have ion engines. That's true. And, I was and just that, about to say that. And uh, and ion engines have been absolutely the, the don when it comes to exploring the asteroids and comets, both Dawn and uh, Rosetta. Well, it's the only engines I'd rely on. Uh, 2002, the Stardust spacecraft encounters asteroid Anne Frank. Ah, Anne Frank. Anne Frank also turned out to be two times bigger than anticipated because because of its very dim surface. Um, So 2nd of March 2004, Rosetta launched on Ariane 5. You love Ariane 5, don't you, I do love Ariane 5, and and, and certainly Rosetta is certainly something that us Europeans should be incredibly proud of. Well, we we chatted to one of the main men, didn't we? Gerhard. 2007, what launched in 2007? Dawn. Off she went (whistles) to study the asteroid belt. So in 2008, Rosetta yeah. passed and photographed asteroid Steins. And ah. Steins is a member of a small and rare class of asteroids, the E-types, not to be confused with Jaguars, Jaguar. but a special type of um, uh, asteroid uh, composed of silicates and basalts. Matt, what's your favourite vintage car? Uh, easy, the Aston Martin. 
See, yeah, that is a great one. But mine will always be the Ford Mustang. 1966, black <sighs> Ford Mustang, please. Uh, no, if, there's give, any, give me, if there's anyone from uh, Ford listening... Give me an Aston Martin DB4. <laughs> <laughs> any excuse to bring out more. Brilliant. Oh, yes. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, it's because it's the best car. Uh, uh, 2010. Now here's an ace space mission that's just the best. Is Hayabusa? Good old Japan. Hayabusa. That actually managed to actually get samples from an asteroid and bring them back to Earth. So and, scientists uh, hadn't really been able to, other than what had crashed to Earth in the past, really study yeah. it. Yeah, that's another one of those forgotten missions. I think mm. needs to be talked about more. It's amazing. I think it's because Dawn and Rosetta have just been so amazing. That's true. Kind of clouded. So Rosetta f- also flew past the asteroid Lutetia, longest side 130 kilometres. Blimey. And uh, the images were so good you can see down to 60 metres in detail. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That is close. But in 2010, in the same year, Hubble Telescope spotted the first collision between two asteroids, which is oh. believed to be the first one ever seen. Uh, 2011. See, we get exciting times, isn't it? Dawn it arrived and started orbiting Vesta. So that's the first time that uh, a spacecraft has actually managed to get into an orbit, I, I believe, mm. of a of a, in, of an asteroid, uh, and t- learnt a lot about Vesta. Uh, and then Rosetta, in 2014, managed to reach the comet 67P Churyumov Gerasimenko. Glad you pronounced that. I've tried it before on the show and got it hideously wrong. I don't think I did particularly well there. but because you've been hanging out with your mate. Alicia would definitely say that. Good old Alicia. And, of course, one of the most famous moments in space history so far is when the Philae lander, on the 12th of November 2014, landed on the comet. Absolutely. Incredible scenes. Absolutely awesome. Uh, Then 2015, Dawn managed to get into Ceres orbit. So, uh, and as it approached, we saw that brilliant little unknown white spot on Ceres, and everyone yes. was very, very excited. Ooh, what's that? Oh, what is that? Is it and, ice? Uh, well, it looks, you know, it is looks it? like, you know, that there's some kind of volcanicity of some form, and yes. yeah, icy, salty stuff coming to the surface in a crater. Wow. It's really very quite exciting. Uh, and it, it was supposed to go off to a third object, but uh, NASA have decided to keep dawn in in orbit around Ceres to get as much information as possible and of 30th of September last year Rosetta made her landing on the comet to join little Philae little Philae that was and that was the end of the mission ah well what an incredible run through of history yeah, so that's the kind of like yeah the the history of space flight and asteroids, and I brought in a little bit of comets because because obviously Rosetta got involved out. in all yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No stone unturned there, Matt. No asteroid unturned. A really interesting fact is if you if you got all the asteroids together, crushed them all up, yeah, splat them all together, including all the big ones like Ceres and and uh, Pallas and Vesta and all that lot, mm. and, you, and you scrunched them all up, every single one of them, still nowhere near as big as the moon. God, that's nuts, isn't it? So that's you not, would have thought that yeah. they would be. Yeah. Yet Blimey. they, you know... But the annoying thing is, they're out there, and the Earth c- could one day, as it has done in the past, smash into one 
and it's all over. Yeah, this is the thing. <laughs> yeah, we we yeah. definitely shouldn't take them for granted. No, so um, I shall be talking to Debbie about uh, what they talked about at Asteroid Day Absolutely. at the Imperial College on Friday. Um, so, yeah, how cool is that? Very cool. I've learned something. Ah, oh, so Jamie, you know we're having our no. We know we've got to get through our uh, <laughs> five hundred and five hundred odd astronauts. Okay, so how many? How many are we on now? I think we're. I think we're on four. Are we, are we uh, on so, four? <laughs> well, so we're we steaming do for, through it. Yeah. <laughs> who Who are we going to do? Who is astronaut of the week? Astronaut of the week is this week, Elon Ramon. Well, I had luckily I had the fortunate position of just finishing Mike Massimino's um, book about being a spaceman. Yeah, and uh, he reads the book, and, and it's fantastic. By the way, anyone you should just listen uh, get get that book on Audible. It's absolutely fantastic. It's my favorite. It's my fav definitely my favorite uh, spaceman uh, book so oh, far. Check it out. I, I, but but it's really good. The fact that Mike Massimino reads it, he's he's just such a great person What's to listen to. Called? But I think it is called Spaceman. I think that's it. I think uh, that's what it's called. I think we'll check it out. And and he talks about Elon Ramon in very glowing terms. And I and I believe in and he does pronounce it Elon Got it. Ramon. Uh, and so um, yeah, he talks about him in very glowing terms when he arrived. You know, this guy was such a great energy, and because because of his kind of um, political status as being an Israeli astronaut, it was you know it was pretty obvious that he was going to fly the next mission that, that 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 he was definitely going to be sort of pushed in that direction yeah plus when you when you read this guy's resume you realize yeah this this guy this guy ain't messing around well let's go through it where did it start well it all started back in june 20th 1954 in ramat gan in israel where he was born elon wolferman what a surname yeah so and he changed elon meaning tree in hebrew yeah which is nice. Guess what my name means in Hebrew, Jamie? Um, I've got to be careful here. It's God's gift. Let's 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 move on. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Matthew means God's gift in Hebrew. <laughs> oh dear. And Russell means to women. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> no, but no, but no, but Matthew does mean. God's gift. Okay. Or uh, gift of yeah, God. you keep telling yourself yeah. that. <laughs> so, so uh, yes, Ramon uh, became a space shuttle payload specialist on STS 107, of which we'll hear more of later. We will. Uh, yeah, we will. Uh, and he's the only person ever to receive the United States Congressional Space Medal of Honor oh, wow. that's not American. Yeah. Uh, his father was from Germany and his family had fled Nazi persecution and his grandparents were Holocaust survivors mm. from, Aus from Auschwitz. So we have a pretty tough, pretty tough background. He graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in electronics and computer engineering from Tel Aviv University. Nice. He was a colonel and a fighter pilot in the Israeli Air Force. Uh, and being in the Israeli Air Force is no mean feat. They're, they're possibly yeah. amongst the greatest uh, pilots in the world, purely because obviously <laughs> they live in one of the most dangerous exactly. um, Top areas of the world with with 
uh, and and they are the sort of first line of defence. So you know, the people in the air force in Israel are <laughs> pretty highly regarded. Yeah. So 1981 to 83, he was a, a deputy squadron commander. And then in 1981, and this is probably, other than his space shuttle mission, uh, uh, one of the things he's most famous for, he was the youngest of uh, an elite set of pilots. And when I say elite, I mean elite set of pilots who took part in Operation Opera, which I actually do remember where where they uh, the Israelis flew into Iraq and bombed uh, the Osarak nuclear reactor because they were so scared that... Uh, uh, Iraq was going to get a, a nuclear weapon. Yeah. That they flew basically one of the most daring missions of all time. Now, so a, a little tidbit that I picked up from Mike Massimino's book was that he was flying at the back because he was the youngest. They saw <laughs> he was he was taking he was, you know, was in the kind of the rearest position of this um group of uh, fighter planes flying uh-huh. in to do this bombing mission. So he was at the back, which basically means that you are the most likely to die because mm. They've had the most amount of time to exactly. get this uh, to get their aim. So, uh, so yeah. So he was at the back in the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous missions ever, and in the most dangerous position. So this this kid Blimey. at the time was a pretty amazing fighter pilot. Uh, he then went on to serve as deputy squadron commander, uh, flying the F four Phantom, and nice. then went back to the F sixteen. And commanded a squadron in 1992 and then was promoted to rank of colonel. And so he's accumulated 3,000 flight hours in A4s, Mirages, F4s, God, and over a thousand. No, over a thousand flight hours in F16s. So that, you know, he's a pilot, pretty, pretty much a peerless pilot. Pretty experienced uh, there. Yeah. So. Obviously, uh, Israel sent their very best person to become a NASA astronaut. You know, this was Israel's, check out this guy. Here we go. Uh, go over to America, become an astronaut. This is the, this is the best of the best that we have. Hmm. And um, it was a six, uh, so STS-107 uh, on, uh, on the space shuttle Columbia yeah. that flew on January the 16th, 2003, was a 24-hour-a-day science mission. So they went up and just basically did experiments for 24 hours a day uh, in alternating shifts, and uh, they managed to get 80 experiments done. Um, and while he was on board that mission, uh, Ramon, uh, even though he was a secular Jew, yes. he, f- he really felt that he was representing all Jews and all Israelis. Absolutely. So he was. So he took that responsibility extremely seriously. No doubt. He he had kosher food while yeah. on board. The first person to to request kosher food in space, I believe. Uh-huh. And he also took advice from a rabbi about how to observe the Sabbath in space, because of course they have lots of sunrises every day. So it, you know, obviously the the Sabbath becomes a kind of a bit of a weird that's right a yeah new you can't weird meaning, that long so. can you you wouldn't get any experiments done and he took quite a few jewish kind of uh memorabilia well i say memorabilia uh sort of in jewish important uh objects into space uh-huh so uh one of them was a moon landscape that was drawn by a 16 year old peter gintz who had died in auschwitz oh uh, he also took a m- microfiche copy of the Torah 
that was given to him by President Moshe Katsav. And he was also given a miniature Torah scroll uh, by Professor Yahuwah Yosef, who was a Belson survivor. So that's come from the yeah, so that come from Belson. And also the Holocaust Survivor Club in Los Angeles called the nineteen thirty nine Club gave him um a barbed wire mesusa uh by the artist Amy Gollant. Interesting. What so is a mesusa? Do you know what? I don't know what masseuse is. I maybe should have looked that up. Let's, I'm going to uh, Google it now. Yeah. It, a biblical oranging therefore carries great weight. Um, comprises a piece of parchment called a claft inscribed with a specific Hebrew verse from the Torah. Okay, interesting. So, yeah, he t- obviously um, he took quite a few... Uh, he's got quite a few military decorations from the yeah. Yom Kippur War, the Operation Peace of the Galilee... And uh, the 1,000 flight hours in an F-16 gives you a military deck. And lots of things have been named after him. Ramon Airport. Yes. He's had an asteroid, 51828, named after him. Nice. Uh, There's Ramon Hill on Mars, Ramon Crater on the moon, lots of university campuses in both Israel and America, and lots of schools, lots of primary schools, especially in Israel, are called... Uh, oh, he's a bit of a legend, Il- Ilan Ramon. by all accounts. And lots of street names everywhere, including Canada. So, yes, I mean, he's a massive um, uh, hero, really. And the start of Columbia's mission, he had been greeted by a wave of excitement in Israel. And it was on the front cover of every single newspaper. Yeah. And school children learned about all the scientific experiments that he was going to conduct in orbit. Uh, he was portrayed as a figure of unity at the time. So it was like all the political divisions. It was kind of a way Brilliant. of bringing the Palestinians and the Israeli people together. And was also sort of seen as a as a symbol of the close relationship between US and uh, Israel and sort of showing off Israel's scientific and technological prowess. Of course. And here we get to the saddest part of the story, I'm afraid, James. Oh, go on then. Well, Columbia, of course, STS, uh, for those more eagle-eyed or eagle-eared listeners, I'm afraid STS-107 was the terrible uh, uh, disaster where Columbia broke up on re-entry. It did. Very sad. Because of a piece of of foam that had fallen off. And it was six crew that died? Yep. All six crew died, unfortunately, mm. uh, and uh, of course, what's what's you know they're only fifteen minutes away from landing, so all their families are there at the at the at the at the landing site. Awful, and yeah, awful. In in Israel, of course, that that was pretty much a really devastating blow. Uh, yeah, taxis apparently sort of stopped at the side of the road and and put their doors and windows open and just let blasting the news out into the street and all God. the sort of all the t- TV broadcasts just had somber music in between all the programs. Yeah, uh, and uh, the Israeli uh, prime minister basically said, you know, that he was going to be mourned by all his countrymen as the best we could offer. Absolutely. Yes. So, uh, and the tragedy actually doesn't stop there uh, because Ramon was survived by his wife, Rona, and their four children. And unfortunately, his son went to become a fighter pilot and also died in 2009, aged 21, on a routine flight of his F-16. Oh, God. So, yeah, oh, three months dear. after graduating. 
as well, the top it's a, cadet. It's it just goes on to prove that it is it's a dangerous place, isn't it? Uh, yeah, space is a dangerous place, but the and these people that go into space are incredible people and they Very put their, brave. they genuinely put their lives on the line well, and, and their paving, families know they're, they're paving there. the way because like, you know, as Elon once said, you know, uh, every mistake we learn something from it and we get better. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, I mean it's one of the reasons why these people one of the extraordinary things is that there was a uh, his diary while he was in space actually a, a big chunk of it survived. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, survived re-entry. And I think you can see a couple of pages of it in the Israeli Museum in mm. um, Jerusalem, I think it is. Oh, it'd be is. interesting and, to read that. Yeah, and uh, the, the, the woman, Yigal Salmona, who's the um, curator there, Yeah, she, she, she pointed out the diary had survived extreme heat in the explosion, atmospheric cold, attacks by microorganisms and insects once it was on the ground... It's just, just incredible that it's um, survived, and so pretty incredible. much no rational explanation of how it did. Yeah, uh, but uh, yes. Yeah, so, so one of the one of the lines in there that's on display is: "Today was the first day that I felt that I am truly living in space. I have become a man who lives and work in space." And that wow. was, yeah, and that was on the last day that he wrote that in his journal. Incredible. Yeah. So yeah. What a great guy! Uh, and a, tra- a, tra- a tragic, tragic loss. But what a life! My word! Whoa. What a legacy! Yeah. So yeah, there we go. There Incredible, was Elon well, Ramon. So, listeners, if you've got a um, a favourite astronaut that we haven't yet covered, please feel free to comment or send us an email or you know tweet us, and uh, and we'll we'll put them onto the show. And uh, in, a, in, a, in a few hours' time, I believe we have a Long March 5 going yeah. up. Yeah. And not too long after, a Falcon 9. Yeah, I'm on my Another way Falcon now 9. to the launch site. Going to get ready What's to go China? Up? <sighs> <laughs> I'm not. So, yeah. And then after that, we haven't got one for ages. So I don't think we'll, we'll have so much Let's make report. the most of these, okay? Yeah, so, uh, yeah. I mean, he's proper popping them out now, isn't he? Old Elon Musk on the Falcon 9. They, they are going up. He's not They are going about. up big time. Really is. Well, it's always good to speak to you, Matthew. I want you to have a good weekend, get yeah. some rest, and then yeah. we'll see you next week. We'll see you next week, and hopefully we'll have that little chat with Debbie for next week. And we may even have another uh, guest on the podcast next week. Which would be really exciting, Ooh. but it's, it's it's been quite a hard one to uh, to arrange a window of opportunity for uh, interview because it's an American you're, guest. You're leaving a cliffhanger here, aren't you? I am. I what am. What you're leaving doing a cliffhanger. is making people excited to come back and listen again, aren't you? We have got we have I'm got learning. a couple I'm of learning. corking guests in the next few weeks, so keep keep listening in. Subscribe, space freaks. Oh yeah, definitely subscribe to the old uh, iTunes, etc. Yeah, just, please. Yeah, keep keep leaving your comments and emailing us at the website. It's a new look website, of course. www.interplanetary.org.uk. Yeah. Just you know, come join us. Come join us out in space. Buy, where can people buy the merch map? That, that from the website from from uh, interplanetary.org.uk. Because if we haven't mentioned buy... it, guys, you can buy a whole host. Of exciting merch, mugs, t-shirts, clocks, yeah. 
Arthur performed at the school fete in his interplanetary podcast T-shirt today. Serious? Yeah, serious, man. I really need serious. to get involved. I still haven't got mine. Extra, extra, <laughs> extra large, please. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about your... Yeah, yeah. It's anything to do with the podcast, you're actually six <laughs> foot eight. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, Matt, it's been a pleasure, and um, thanks for listening, guys. Um, and we'll see you next week. See you next week, Space Cats. Ta-ta. Ta-ta. Thank you.